winter song was this past week. Uh, if you weren't there, you missed out. Uh, it's just such a great evening. And um, I'm glad Justin's keeping up this game with that flannel today. I'm loving that thing today. Um, all right, we are um, back looking at the women that are found in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, we looked a few weeks ago at Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew chapter 1, and it just looks like a big long list of names, but really what it is, is Jesus' family tree. And most uh, family trees, most, fam- most genealogies uh, back in those days in the ancient Near East did not include any women whatsoever. And so it's important for us to see these women, and we've been calling them uh, the mothers of Jesus. And here's my, uh, here, here's my conviction. I think if we see who Jesus came from, that we can discover who Jesus comes to. So if Jesus came from somebody like we're going to look at today, Bathsheba, then he can come to people like Bathsheba. Uh, so far we've covered two women. One was Tamar from Genesis, and um, we saw she was a tenacious woman of faith, and she practiced prostitution to get what was rightfully hers. Last week we talked about Rahab. She was a non-Jew. She had somehow heard of the deeds of the Lord. She was converted. And she was a prostitute. You may have never heard of either of those women, but even if you've not been around the church very much, it's very likely that you've heard the woman that we will discuss today. Her name is Bathsheba. She's well known for who she's associated with, much more than because she's mentioned a whole bunch of times in the scripture. Who she's associated with is King David, and King David is the most mentioned person in the Bible outside of Jesus. And her son, Solomon, is the second most well-known king of all in Israel's history. In fact, if you were to do a word search about Bathsheba, you would just find five episodes where she's mentioned. And in those five episodes, they're all in connection with David or Solomon. It's almost like she's a non-person because she just lives in the shadow of these two massive figures. And her reputation is forever associated with happened on just one day of her life. So let's read about it here this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. I'll be skipping around a little bit. Just hang in there with me. Verse 1, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she, Bathsheba, went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Not the first time those three words have changed your life, right? Verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Uriah Uh, In this instance, um, he's one of David's 
soldiers, one of the more high-ranking ones, and he goes off to battle. And then he comes home when David sends for him, and he and David spend some time together. And while they're spending time together, David's very, uh, very generous with him, very uh, kind to him when, uh, he, when they're with one another. But then as he walks out the door, here's what he does. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. In this letter, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. If you were David, would you have been able to keep from reading that letter? (laughs) I don't think I would have. And then I would have been running for the hills. But instead, he doesn't open it in verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strong defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Successful campaign for David, right? His plans are coming to bear. Then verse 26 When Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. The son was the result of this baby dying, right? And this upset David greatly, upset Bathsheba greatly. But eventually, verse 24 of chapter 12 reads like this. And then David comforted his wife, and he went into her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The word of the Lord. So all this starts with Bathsheba taking a bath. And you might be thinking, as you read that passage, you might be thinking, I mean, she's asking for it. If you're going to be in the nude outside, I mean, what else do you expect? But that's not what's going on here. We've got to remember that there's no indoor plumbing. That if you were going to take a bath, it was going to be outside. And what we know from archaeology is that there were barriers up around people's, um, there were barriers up around people's bathing areas. So the only way you could see someone taking a bath is if you had a high vantage point. And David has this high vantage point. He has a palace that's multiple stories. And he's up high and he sees her taking a bath. And this just it isn't any old bath. This is a bath with religious purposes. I mean, that's what it says up there in verse 4, where it says, Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Now, if you were to know the Old Testament law, to know what it meant to be ceremonially clean, then you would know that both men and women were required to take baths after they had released certain bodily excretions. And for women, this excretion was part of their monthly routine. So we know that Bathsheba is a woman who wanted to walk in holiness. But little did she know that this act of Godly devotion would lead to her being preyed upon by someone who could see over the barriers. And eventually this someone, we find out to David, and he would lie with her. She'd become pregnant. And David tried to cover up his sin, so he killed off Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And then David married Bathsheba. 
See, Bathsheba had to marry the man who planned for the murder of her husband. And Bathsheba lost her baby. Now just stop there for just a minute. Think about the, the, the life that Bathsheba thought she was going to live as a young woman. She thought she was going to live her days following God. She married a man of utmost integrity. I didn't read it all, but if you were to read the whole chapter, you'd find that Uriah was, was, was really, really kind and faithful, a man of integrity. And it seems like that Uriah and Bathsheba hadn't been married long enough for her to have children. And now her dreams are dashed. She's now married to the man who arranged for her husband's murder and she's lost her baby. And it's all because she was trying to obey God and because she was beautiful. And see, that's just the thing, isn't it? I mean, pain is the unavoidable reality in our lives, whether you're a Christian or not. And when I mean pain, I'm referring to the kind of pain that's not your fault. See, it's not Bathsheba's fault that she's beautiful. It's not Bathsheba's fault that her husband and baby are now dead. And Bathsheba has been severely injured due to the sin of King David. She has been sinned against, and now she needs healing. See, the same is true for you. Now, the, the sin that, that, that you, that's been, you've been sinned against, it, it may have been sexual abuse. I mean, what we know is that one in four women and one in six men are victims of sexual abuse. That's just sexual abuse. I mean, the numbers are actually much higher when you throw in physical, emotional, verbal, and spiritual abuse. And I, I'd heard these numbers really my whole life, and I always wondered, well, I mean, these are, seem exaggerated to me. And they seemed exaggerated because... No one had ever told me that they were an abuse victim. No one ever shared that with me my whole life, and then I became a pastor. And I'm fully convinced that these numbers are accurate. And so maybe for you, maybe you're a victim of abuse, and you need healing. Now, you might say, well, Marsha, I've not been, I'm not the victim of abuse. I mean, what do I have to, how am I supposed to think about all of this? Need for healing, being sinned against. Well, let's just talk about garden variety sins. If someone lies to you, they've sinned against you. That hurts. If someone slanders you, that hurts. If someone holds a grudge against you, that hurts. If you've been lusted after, you've been sinned against. See, all of us are victims. All of us are victims of other people's sin. But we're also victims of living in a broken world. Things that aren't our fault happen to us that leave their mark, that leave us scarred, and we need healing. Things like losing a loved one, enduring horrible illness, living in a sexualized, materialistic, hateful, racialized, and unjust society. All of these are just a few instances of being hurt and needing healing. So whether a tornado has ripped through your community or someone you love used you or abused you, they, these things have impacted your souls. They've impacted your bodies. 
And those negative impacts are the evidence of our need for healing. But how's that healing going to come? How's it going to come for Bathsheba in our story? Is it going to come because those who have sinned against us pay for the restitution? Is that how healing really comes? I mean, look at all the complications that Bathsheba's got to deal with. I mean, usually when you look at this passage, most of the time spent is talking about David. I'm going to talk about David a little bit because you just have to to tell Bathsheba's story. But I want you to think of, I mean, put yourself in her position. I mean, by the time you get to 2 Samuel 11, you've read from 1 Samuel 16 until chapter, through chapter 10 of 2 Samuel. That's a lot of chapters. You get about 20 chapters of content. And if you read those 20 chapters, you'll get the sense that David is pretty close to perfect. I mean, he's this incredible military political leader. He's an incredibly gifted artist who wrote over half the Psalms. He's referred to in such a way that no one else in the scriptures is. He's called man after God's own heart. He's incredibly courageous as he deals with Goliath and then he deals with Saul. He's an incredible friend to Jonathan. He's merciful to his enemies. This is the woman, this is the man who sinned against Bathsheba. But but on the other side, we see that he's deeply flawed. I mean, he has seven other wives besides Bathsheba. He has at least 15 children. He has concubines. In case you don't know what a concubine is, it's someone that, that was David's property, but she lacked legal status and protections of being a wife. He had many of them. We don't know how many. And then you see his life as a father, and you see that he lacked a backbone with his kids, and it leads to all kinds of corruption and conflict. That's the kind of position she's in. It's complicated to be her, isn't it? Well, it gets more complicated because what happens in chapter 12 is that David repents. <laughs> David's confronted by Nathan the prophet. David sees his sin, he confesses his sin, and he receives pardon from Nathan immediately upon his confession. And if, can you imagine being in the room when that happens? You see this take place between Nathan and David. What's Bathsheba supposed to think? He's going to get off on this? Are you serious? But her life just keeps getting complicated even after his call to repentance. Because all the flaws that we see in David happen after his repentance. See, when you see yourself in Bathsheba, when you're put into this corner, when you have to realize the pain that you are dealing with in your life, you do one of two things. You either minimize your hurt, you minimize the severity of someone else's sin, or you nurse your wound. Let's talk about minimizing your hurt or or the severity of someone else's sin. It's kind of like saying, it'd be like if I was bleeding, if I had a short sleeve shirt on and my lower arm was bleeding and it just kept bleeding. I'm I'm interacting with you before church, while I'm up here leading worship, preaching after church, and this goes on for a couple weeks. Every time you see me, I'm just dripping blood. And you say, Marsh, would you do something about that? I'm like, man, I'm all right. It doesn't hurt that bad. I'm okay. What would happen eventually? 
I would bleed out and I would die because I would be minimizing my own pain. And if someone else had done that to me, had, 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 put, had, had hurt me in such a way that ended up my death, I'd be like, it's okay, they didn't mean to do it. It wasn't that bad. It's one way of thinking about it, that we minimize our hurt and severity of someone's sin. The other thing we do is we nurse the wound. If you have a wound, if you have been hurt in the way Bathsheba is, it's possible the human condition falls in love with their hurt. Because it feels really good to hold someone else hostage. It's really hard to forgive. And if this is you, you'll end up dying too. You won't bleed out. You'll just die of a hard heart because you will hold that grudge against the person who hurt you. But here's what both responses do. Both responses refuse to genuinely forgive. Therefore, both responses prevent deep healing from taking place. See, this is tricky to be her, isn't it? How is she going to be healed? Is she going to be healed because David steadfastly becomes consistent? He loves her well. He loves the children well. Well, if that's going to happen, she's never going to get healed because that's not what takes place. She's going to be disappointed. She's going to remain wounded. So how have you been hurt? You ever thought about that? How have you been sinned against? So if you've been sinned against, you need healing. But if you are the one who has sinned, then you need your guilt removed. You need forgiveness like David did. And like I said, from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 11, he's nearly perfect. So how can David fall so fast? I think it's a good question. And I think if we look at our passage, I think we can find four things that were in play for David that made him sin so fast. The first one, he's isolated. See, the beginning of that passage, what you see is that he's by himself, that the troops were off to war, and it was very unusual in the ancient Near East for kings not to accompany their, their armies. But he stayed by himself. And when you're not surrounded by other Christians, and you find yourself friendless, you find yourself lonely, you're in danger of ending up just like David. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that he's bored. David wasn't doing anything. And when we lack purpose in our lives, we unintentionally find ourselves way steep in evil far too often just because we're bored. I think the other thing we see is that David was entitled. I mean, David was a very powerful king. He was a leader and. All leaders have to do hard things. All leaders have to do unglamorous things that no one sees. All leaders get criticism that no one else knows about. So then leaders, they have this unknown, unappreciated burden. And that can lead to their self-pity, which then leads to their entitlement. And when you're entitled, you will exercise your power in ways that bring you pleasure. but that use other people. You're entitled, you're bored, you're isolated, and you have to realize that sin happens fast. I mean, look back at verse 4. In verse 4, 
look how fast these verbs come down the pipe at you. It says he sins, he takes, he lays. It doesn't take long for David to sin, and there's no hint that this was premeditated on David's behalf. And oftentimes the same happens to us. We don't think we're capable of sin acts, but we actually end up committing sin acts because we were given the prime opportunity. We do the unthinkable, and at the end of it all, we're surprised that that happened. Well, don't be. The moment that you think you're beyond cheating on your spouse, the moment you think you're beyond blowing up on a family member or a friend, the moment that you think you're beyond engaging in extravagant greed, then you are susceptible to falling. All you and I need is a convenient and attractive occasion with the promise of not getting caught, and we'll blow it too. See, sin happens fast. See, and just like we saw earlier, you only find relief from your sin when you repent. But I think this is a good question. What's going to lead you to repent? Well, luckily David had someone who was willing to confront him. I mean, he could have killed Nathan and no one would have said a thing. You crossed the king. But that's not what happens. And Nathan, is art, his, his confrontation is artful. He doesn't shame David, but he does confront him. He invites him to repentance. And David takes the opportunity. And I think the reason that David took the opportunity is that he really knew what God was like. I mean, every time that he walked into worship, he heard the words of Deuteronomy 34. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. David knew those words. David knew the whole sacrificial system was set up because there was a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful and forgiving God who loved him. He knew that God's mercy was available to him. He knew that if he owned up to his sins, that God would accept him. And brother and sister, you have the same thing. If you've been hiding, if you're afraid of getting caught, if you have a skeleton in your closet, you have a God who waits to be merciful to you. So repent. Let's go back to Bathsheba. What's she supposed to do? I mean, if her healing is dependent on David maintaining some level of faithfulness after his repentance, then she's out of luck. He doesn't necessarily make a 180. What's she supposed to do as he continues to struggle to carry out biblical sexual standards? What's she supposed to do as he continues to struggle to lead the kids? How is she going to deal with the pain of losing Uriah and her first son? Well, she might be tempted to remain bitter at David. I would be. She might be tempted to brush his sin under the rug and minimize her pain. She might be tempted to forget the pain by numbing out in some unhealthy way. I don't know. But she needs healing. How about you? How are you going to get the healing that you so desperately need? We need to look to Jesus. That's what Bathsheba needed to do too. See, Jesus calls himself the great physician. 
And let me tell you, he's skilled. He's skilled at dealing with hurting patients. He knows what medicines you need. It might be a consolation of a good friend. It might be a word of peace. It might be a home-cooked meal. It might be a wise therapist. But his office is never closed. You never get put on a wait list. He doesn't get sick of you coming back for the same thing over and over and over. He always has more hope for your recovery than you do. So this Christmas, will you come to him? Will you realize that your addiction is tied to your pain and that your compulsive habits are only making matters worse? Will you see that holding the grudge isn't getting you what you want? It's not going to heal you when that person finally asks for forgiveness. Minimizing your pain is not going to work either. But coming to Jesus will. See, here's what God knew when it came to the incarnation. God knew that we didn't need money. If he did, then he would have sent an economist, right? He, he knew that what's going to fix our problems is not entertainment. If he did, then he would have sent it. If what was going to fix our pain and bring us forgiveness was some political leader, then he would have sent a politician, but he didn't. See, what Bathsheba needed, what David needed, what you need, and what I need is a Savior. And that's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Oh, Father, will you lift yourself before our eyes and just be amazed that if Jesus can come from people like Bathsheba, that Jesus can come to people like Bathsheba. Oh, Lord, I pray, too, for those, the, David, the Davids among us. Uh, Lord, show us that uh, if we come to you with a broken and contrite heart, you'll never despise us. Help us, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name. Amen.